Welcome back to Camp 8. This is Eli Sagor here again with Kyle Gill. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Eli. Last episode, we told you the podcast had a new name, Camp 8, but we didn't tell you much more about it. So today's episode is all about Camp 8, uh, the podcast and the physical Camp 8 at the Cloquet Forestry Center. As two foresters we, who see the world in a certain way, we're happy to be joined by Claire Bowrichter. Claire is a creative nonfiction writer at the University of Minnesota who spent the summer of 2019 researching Camp 8 so that its story could be documented and known for current and future generations. Welcome, Claire. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. So here's the story. About a year ago, I got one of those great emails from Claire. As a creative nonfiction writer and former wildland firefighter, Claire wondered if we had any stories that she might write about. Well, I almost fell out of my chair. The forestry world is full of colorful people and great stories, but we're not always so good at telling those stories, and the opportunity to work with a professional storyteller was just too good to pass up. So long story short, we scraped together a few dollars to pay Claire, told her a bit about Camp 8, and off she went. So today, the three of us are going to talk about what happened next and about the story of Camp 8. So we still haven't told you what it is, so let's start there. Let's, let's get to it. What is Camp 8? What is Camp 8 really depends on your perspective. <laughs> to me, as the uh, forest manager and research coordinator at the Cloquet Forestry Center, it's primarily a 44-acre portion of the Cloquet Forestry Center that's been set aside as a reserve since around 1909, which is when the university uh, was donated the land. It's a portion of the forest that has 200 to 250 year old red pines and white pines in the canopy, plus many other ecological community members such as our malaria, red maple, deer flies, deer ticks, paper birch, winter green, blueberry, beaked hazel, raspberry, jack pine, mountain maple, so on and so forth. And it's all growing on very sandy soil that was the result of a sandy outwash plain back when the glaciers were there. It's a place that also is has many subjective values laden descriptions and interpretations that are as unique as each of us are. And so to know what Camp 8 is depends on who you are, whether you're standing in the stand or you're seeing it from afar. As a forester, I see it as a mature red pine stand that fits into the reserve management style within the landscape triad conceptual framework. As an ecologist, I'd see it as a FDN 33, a northern dry music mixed woodland that's roughly 210 years into its stand development from the most recent stand reinitiating disturbance. As a historian or dendrochronologist, I see the entire stand has a similar development history from stand reinitiation around 1813 until 1984, when the forest manager decided to split the stand into treated and untreated halves. If I were a deer, a dog, or a mosquito, I would experience the stand in an entirely different way. So Claire, from your perspective as a creative writer who was invited to come get to know the stand and, and tell us more about it, how would you answer the question, what is Camp 8? So I think when I think about what is Camp 8, I go back to that time in mid-May when I first got to experience the stand. I think about walking down the forest road and just being surrounded by these big, towering, old red pines. I remember looking at their bark. It's the signature red color, but also oranges and browns. Um, and I remember just being so impressed. These trees are so tall and high up. You can see their limbs. They're all twisted and sinuous kind of serpentine. Uh, you get a sense of the wind moving through them. Um, and then it's interesting because lower down the trees, we don't have those limbs. So you get kind of this more open, bigger sense around you. And it's interesting because looking 
from this road, you can look to one side of the stand and then to the other. Um, and you can see that there's a difference there. You can see that half of the stand has had some management um, and the other really hasn't. So one side is looking more open uh, while the other has a bit more um, overgrown brush, things like that going on. I also think about when I think about what is Camp 8, getting to revisit the stand in the winter time. So I, my first experience was in mid-May and then I got to experience throughout the summer the stand and then return in early December to actually ski there. And so I think about skiing through that beautiful place, snow is on the branches, there's the, all these muffled sounds. Um, and it was just really powerful, really reverent place to be. So you bring up the sounds. When you were there in May, was there anything particularly as part of the soundscape that, uh, that you couldn't help but be aware of? So I'm a really bad birder, but I did hear, you know, the different calls of the birds. I thought it was really interesting too, um, in one of my interviews, talking to a dendrochronologist about the different sounds um, that the wind makes through various trees. And so I remember going into the stand and listening just to the sound of the wind moving through the branches, um, and along the ground. How about smells? Did you smell, is there anything that, that was noticeable about the smell when you first walked into the stand? So I will say as someone who has spent time in a ponderosa pine forest, um, I looked at the red pines and I saw they had some similar appearances to ponderosas and so I walked up and I took a sniff of the bark. Um, as I'm sure a lot of people know, ponderosa pines have this like cream soda smell. Um, I didn't get that, but I did, you know, get the sense of being outside in Minnesota, that kind of humidness, um, the soil. And I'm sure you felt a few mosquitoes or deer flies. <laughs> a few, that's for sure. Eli, when, you, when the question, what is Camp 8, comes up to you, how would you answer that? Well, it's interesting. I, I work uh, mainly in extension, and so I think, you know, I spend a lot of time bringing groups into the woods. And over the 20 years or so that I've worked at the Cloquet Forestry Center, I've brought more groups to Camp 8 and I've been involved in more tours in Camp 8 than anywhere else on, uh, maybe anywhere else period, certainly than any other stand at the Cloquet Forestry Center. And I've, I've always loved bringing groups there because it's such, you know, it's a stand that's really, uh, it grabs your attention. You know, it, it really is a special place. It's different from other stands that we visit. Um, and it's different in some ways that are obvious, not just to foresters or ecologists, but to anyone walking into that stand. You walk in and it's like walking into a cathedral. It's, you've got these big, huge trees. You've got this open space, as Claire described in the understory, at least on the treated side. And you've got a, a, a variety of other things. And these treatments that, that you mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the treatments that happened out there were meant to simulate the effects of fire. So uh, basically, Camp 8 is a fire-dependent forest, and, and it used to burn quite frequently. It has not burned um, very much at all, I don't think, Kyle, you might correct me, but since the university acquired it in 1909. And so those treatments were meant to simulate the effects of fire. So on the side that's been treated, that understory is not completely gone, but is much lighter than it is in the untreated side where all that brush has grown up that would have otherwise been killed by fire. And so it's a fascinating place to take groups of people, again, whether they're professional uh, natural resource managers or school children or whomever, uh, because they all, everybody is struck by Camp 8. 
but different people are struck in different ways. And I think, you know, this is part of what we'll talk about is part of what makes Camp 8 such an interesting place. But to me, it's really a place that we gather. It's a place that gets everybody thinking about what we value about forests, how we relate to forests, about the role of management. Some people think, well, we shouldn't have done that management. This should have been, as you described it, Kyle, a reserve. We shouldn't have touched it at all. Why'd you go in and, and, and cut out the understory? Others might point out that, well, fire was a normal ecological process in stands like this. And so when we eliminated it, you know, management of that type um, would have made it a more, you know, quote unquote, natural stand. And I mean, you know, these words have different meanings to different people. And, and this is exactly what makes Camp 8 such a great place, such a rich, um, you know, place to have discussions like this. So um and, and, and that's why people yeah go ahead that's why we decided to change the name of camp eight right or change the name of the podcast because of that sentence that you brought up that's it's a place where we can learn about forests we can learn about the values that we place on forests and we can learn about uh, our involvement as humans in the management of these places I think too, another thing is visually you can see kind of that fire history as well when you're in the stand I think walking around it, you begin to see these different fire scars kind of climbing up the bark. And you can see that history right there laid into the wood. And that's a really powerful thing to get to show people as well. Which is exactly why a couple of years ago, we had a dendrochronologist come in and do a fire history reconstruction because that was our ability, that improved our ability to know the history of the stand, at least from a biological perspective. And my understanding of why we asked you to explore this stand, Claire, is because we thought you'd be able to really help us be able to explore the cultural history, because that's something that as a forester, I often overlook. Is that the sense that you got of what we were asking you to do is explore the cultural history of Camp 8? Yeah, I did get that sense. I felt that I was to come in and kind of be this set of eyes and ears to this place and really kind of collecting all these perspectives, all these thoughts, all these stories and shaping them. And I thought that the emphasis was to be placed on ecology, history, and then of course this huge component, which was culture, which hadn't really been as fully explored as potentially some of the other aspects of Camp 8. So Claire, Kyle and I are both um, kind of forestry people and you have a very different kind of personal and professional um, outlook on the world and, and history. So how did you go about telling the story of Camp 8? I mean, we were, I was so excited to work with you because you, you do these things differently. You're, you're a professional storyteller. Tell us a bit about how you went about telling that story. Yeah, so I think everything began with just a lot of long conversations, obviously with both of you um, and then with other people at the Forestry Center. Um, and then of course, those early visits into the stand and getting to walk around the Forestry Center and know the physical place. After that, I think probably the next step was really going down into the Anderson Library archives. Um, they have a really cool special collection there and I got to go down and speak to the librarians and they brought out, I can't remember now if it was 12 or 14 boxes, but they were just full of different artifacts. And so I got to kind of pull out all these old reports and documents and seed charts and maps. And it was really special to be in this place and to be touching these documents that were from the early 1900s um, and reading about all the different ways that people were investing in the forestry center in this early history. So after kind of that archival approach, 
Um, then I started doing some more formal interviews, which really developed into this idea of capturing oral histories. Um, so I was talking to some different retired forestry center folks, Ron Sievers, Chuck Kramer, John Blanchard, Al Alm, um, and then of course doing more formal interviews with a lot of the current people who work at the forestry center. Uh, I talked to Evan Larson, um, who Kyle brought up, that dendrochronologist who done a fire history there. And then some of the most important interviews happened with Vern Northrup, who is a Bureau of Indian Affairs fire specialist and an elder of the Fond du Lac Band, um, as well as Damon Panic, who's the Ojibwe cultural specialist at the Apostle Islands. For me, the interviews were almost the most powerful part of this experience because I got to talk to so many different people about what this place meant to them. I think it's really interesting how different writers approach interviews. Um, I've talked to one of my friends who works for an NPR affiliate, and he told me that his big secret is that he will reveal something personal about himself to his interviewees in the hopes that then they'll have this sense of intimacy and comfort with which they'll then respond to him with something um, equally powerful, which is interesting. That's definitely not my approach. I see myself more as an active listener who's really enthusiastic and excited about what I'm listening to. But that was a really great process. Also, I don't think anyone knows this but me, but um, I actually kept a document with character descriptions of everyone. Eli, Kyle, <laughs> you're both described in there. Different I'd love to see what that says. <laughs> what she looked like. Um, my first impressions of people as well as the place and how people were interacting with the place. I think those things are all really important in bringing things alive. And our memories are fallible. So I tried to, after I do an interview, I'd go open that document and I'd just write down how I would describe this person to a friend. So the interviews were kind of this, this bedrock. And then, of course, I did a lot of contemporary research as well, reading about fire adaptations of red pines, um, looking at the research that Evan had, and his students had conducted. Um, and then, of course, digging into the importance of fire to different indigenous peoples, Fond du Lac Band, the Great Lakes Ojibwe, and then across the United States. And then I kind of sat with all of this information just percolating. I think it was about a month or a month and a half of research. And then in July, I actually started writing. And I kind of like that. I like to be swimming in a lot of information, maybe having some gaps in my knowledge, but feeling pretty comfortable before I start writing. And I was really excited because I felt that that first scene that I wrote really flowed. I was, that's always kind of the tense moment is I have all this information, now can I story it? Can I make a narrative? And I felt like I could, I felt like that happened pretty easily. Um, and I was able to slip into the stream of it. And I think the first thing that I was aware of is that I needed to find a way to show people Camp 8 and to connect them to it in the way that I had seen it and been connected to it. Because I cared so much about Camp 8 and the people that I had talked to cared so much about this place. And so if I could show that to readers, I knew that they were gonna care too. And so that really quickly became important for me to establish what is this place in a physical, ecological sense, a historical sense, and a cultural sense? And then how can I show people the importance of this and, and why we need to care? Claire, so you put that together. The main product, uh, at least so far, has been a story map, right? You, you produced this just fantastic story map, which is a, so it's, it's online, it's digital, it has a lot of photographs, it has some drone footage that Kyle shot from Camp 8, you know, up in the air flying through the canopy and a bunch of other things. So why did you choose that format? And, and you know, why, why was that the best way for you to tell the story? 
So it's interesting because initially I didn't, the text that appears on the story map was actually kind of the second iteration of what I wrote. I started out with more of a long form essay. And so you might think of a long form essay as being a lot, a lot more wordy. I think the actual text of the story map is about 15 pages. The long form essay I wrote is about 40 pages. So I started out with a lot more expansive piece um, with more scenes, dialogue with myself as the narrator, very present to the story. But then the more we started talking about the visual aspects and I started thinking about, and not necessarily interactive, but very much multimedia piece, I started looking around me for different models. Uh, the New York Times is a big one. They do some awesome multimedia pieces and thinking about the different needs of an online multimedia article. And so from that kind of sprawling long form essay, which I still hope to publish with some cuts, but from that I then brought in different journalistic elements and photos and all these things to make the multimedia article. And my goal in doing that was to have the two pieces still be distinct from one another, to have them both kind of doing and operating in ways that were a little bit different. And so for me, it was the mental switch of, okay, I have a reader for 40 pages versus I have a reader who's online and they're interacting with these images and multimedia components. And how do I want to structure differently um, for those two different readers? Well, it's such a cool product. Of course, we'll have a link to the story map on, on the Camp 8 podcast website. And so listeners can go check it out. And I would really encourage folks to do that. It's it's just great. It's a really nice piece of work that captures both the, the story, you know, the, the history and and some facts about Camp 8, but also some really rich, you know, personal stories and, and cultural history that we don't understand. Maybe we don't have at the front of our minds uh, to the degree that we should. So it's really a wonderful product. So, Claire, you know, we're, we're uh, or either of you, you know, we're, a, we're an educational institution. The Cloquet Forestry Center is part of the University of Minnesota. And what we do is education. I mentioned that, you know, I've taken a lot of groups out there and I do that because working for extension, a big part of my job is to get people outside and thinking about what we know and, and, and what we value, how we make informed decisions about natural resource management and so on. I'd like to hear a little bit, maybe Kyle from you first, you know, what do you see as the lessons of Camp 8? What do you think we can learn from stands like Camp 8? I think the history is the big thing and that's why it holds, in the present moment, it holds such a special place in all of our minds and our beings when we walk into it because it feels different than um, a majority of the places that we see on the land. So I mentioned earlier that we, as an ecologist, we would categorize it is a FDN 33 dry mesic mixed woodland. Um, but the expression of that forest community will look and feel really differently depending on if you're in a one-year-old stand, a 50-year-old stand, or as in the case of Camp 8, like a 220-year-old stand. What we can learn about ecologically from this stand is what that stand development looks like. We can also learn about our historical and contemporary relationships between humans and land. I think we often see ourselves as being outside of ecology as humans, but I think we see that our both our actions and our inactions can play a particular role on how these forests develop over time. And in particular with this forest, or this piece of the forest, we can see that there's a, a long history of fire and then we can see that European Americans had a really different relationship with fire. So we primarily saw fire as something that was bad, 
because we came in and we saw the potential value of the red pine trees and so felt like we needed to keep fire out rather than seeing fire as as a part of that ecological community so we the the major value of what we can learn from a stand like camp eight is how our relationship to land evolves over time and how it's different depending on your perspective so yeah we see where when we walk in we can see what 220 years of stand development feels like in the present moment and we can get a sense of our smallness and how little we can actually control to some extent but that we do have both our, our direct and indirect actions as forest managers and as a culture can play a big difference in how that stand develops. Or what about you? After talking to all these people, digging through the archival history and everything else, what do you see as the lessons of Camp 8? I feel like when I think about the lessons of Camp 8, I almost see it in layers because it was one of the most interesting things about talking to people is, again, these different perspectives and views. And so one of the lessons um, that was talked about was this idea that you don't know what you don't know. Um, the importance of Camp 8 as this place of old growth red pines, which are pretty rare now in the state of Minnesota, and how as a place of study, this is a, a key spot. We, we don't have many places where we can really look at these old trees. So that was one of the lessons that was talked about. I also just more generally feel like I learned about dedication to place, talking to Al and John and Chuck and Ron, these people who had just dedicated their life's work to Camp 8 and to the Forestry Center and how beautiful that can be. Um, talking to you, Kyle, I think I started to interrogate my own biases towards the land and towards wilderness and to these ideas that I had about myself on the landscape. Um, and talking to you, Eli, I feel like one of the things that came up was this idea of active management and that choice that we're making. I think Though one of the biggest lessons that I learned was this idea that fire and culture are inextricably linked for a lot of different indigenous peoples and specifically the Great Lakes Ojibwe. And that really came through in my discussions with Byrne and Damon, that there was this really deep cultural fire history here that really needed to be talked about and honored. And that was something that before this project, I wasn't necessarily as aware of as I probably should have been. And then Personally, for me, this project was really eye-opening. As someone who's always written about place and the environment, these issues have always been important to me, but this was the first time where I felt that I really was this creative environmental communicator, that I was gathering and shaping a story and hoping to make people care in a way that could bring about a change. So honestly, one of the lessons that I learned was how to approach this type of project and how to tell a story in order to make a difference. And really in the case of Camp 8, the lesson I learned is how can I connect people? How can I make them care? And, and I hope that comes out through the story map. I'm going to add to Eli that one of the things I like people to learn when they're there, when we get to take people on tours, I like people to walk through both sides. So the, the great learning that we try and get people to do at the Forestry Center is experiential learning uh, because we can, we can learn from a book, we can learn from a podcast, but we can't necessarily, uh, we can learn in a really different way when we actually get to walk through an area. So the big thing, the reason they made the decision in the early 1980s to do the treated and the untreated half was to because the this idea of mesification that Claire talks about in the story quite a bit, that was already becoming known. 
What, what is mesification, Kyle? Can you define that? <laughs> yeah, so the reason we use the word mesification is because a lot of our forest systems exist on a xeric to mesic scale. So xeric being quite dry to mesic being quite uh, moist and humid. And so what we see in stands like this, and this is something we've learned through Evan's work and through other work across the Eastern US, is that a lot of these stands exist on this gradient and our management actions or our, our involvement actions or our choice for inaction can really create kind of a threshold shift of if a stand like Camp 8 has had fire in the past, um, it will express itself on the Zarek side. And if we remove that, that zerification process, which is fire, the drying out process, then it will then develop and trend towards a more uh, mesic side of that gradient. This stand was set up to demonstrate that in the early 80s because we, our management choices have, have changed how these stands develop and has allowed these more non-fire dependent species or these species that would be selected against basically if fire was regularly in there, they start to take a more impactful role in the development of that ecological community. So what I, I like people to get a feel for that. When you walk through the untreated half, you feel the you feel the shade of the hazel that's almost 12 feet tall. And you feel the balsam fir as you try and swim through their limbs. And when you get over to the treated side, you can see really far. You can see across basically a, the small valley that the Camp 8 is on. You can see over to the Esker. And you can see these pockets of white pine that are regenerating or these pockets of birch. So you really get a, a chance to feel what the difference between a structure that forest structure, so forest structure being the vertical and horizontal arrangement of the components of that ecological community, you see that the structure is really different. And what, we, what we've learned is that we sometimes we talk about the mesification process as being during the fire suppression era. And sure, we have suppressed fires, and that's been our relationship to fire. Uh, what we learned through Camp 8 is that we've actually removed more of the ignition source than we have suppressed fire. So to my, the best of my knowledge, there weren't any fires that started that had to go be suppressed since 1909. And that lets us know that or it, it gives some indication, I think Claire gets into this in the story, it gives some indication that, okay, well, something changed. It wasn't necessarily that lightning strikes or something changed, but maybe the human relationship to what we wanted out of that piece of the land really changed between 1908 and 1909. And that's when the big cultural difference in, in our relationship to land and how, what we wanted from that piece of land when the university took over management of the land. Kyle, are you referring to the fact that most fires that were historically in that stand were, we think, were started by people? That's our best guess. We weren't there, uh, but when we listened to the stories of people like Vern and John Blanchard and um, other people that are part of the Fond du Lac band, we know that they were using fire, even though they weren't necessarily documenting it in the way that our culture would document it, they document it through their, their stories and they document it through, through other ways that I don't fully understand because I'm not a part of that culture. But the way I've learned to read that story is through the fire scars and through doing dendrochronology and we can learn about that history. We d so we don't have a, 
yes, I started this fire and here's my burn plan from 1842, which was roughly the, the, the first surface fire that came through after sand reinitiation was 1842. There wasn't a prescribed burn boss that put together a burn plan for that that then is documented in the way that I understand it. So there's not a, a definite yes, this is exactly how those fires started. But I think there's really strong suggestion to say, we know the Ojibwe people were using fire all across the landscape and they had a, a really strong relationship with fire and they knew, they knew that it would produce the things that they wanted to be produced for subsistence living and other, primarily for subsistence living. That's my understanding. Yeah, that was something that really came out talking to to Vern Northrup. Was he mentioned something that there were like 700 recorded reasons for lighting fires by indigenous peoples. And in the Great Lakes region, you know, that could be all different sorts of things from opening up land to kind of controlling bugs. And then a big one that I spent a lot of time researching and talking to people about were blueberries and how after fires, you know, blueberries tend to regenerate and how these, this was a really important part of the subsistence diet for a lot of Great Lakes Ojibwe. Um, and this is something that was really cool to get to see. As part of one of my interviews, I traveled to Stockton Island with Damon Panic, who is, again, the Ojibwe cultural specialist at the Apostle Islands. Stockton Island is one of those islands. And they're doing these cultural burns out there. So this place that was historically burned by different Ojibwe groups, um, they're burning it again, hoping to see those blueberries coming back, but then also for this just bigger cultural purpose that fire is a cultural act. And I thought that was a really cool thing to get to be on the ground and, and to get to see. It's interesting when I think about the lessons of Camp 8, you know, that, that idea of the human influence on Camp 8 is really central to it. You know, when I take groups out, we, we would often uh, talk about the role of management. You know, when the, when the forestry center, Cloquet Forestry Center acquired this land, Camp 8 was reserved intentionally. That was not an accident. It was reserved, as, as Kyle referred to earlier, you know, in order to allow us to compare what, how do managed stands differ from quote-unquote unmanaged stands. And the language that I've heard, and Claire, you might be able to update me on this, is from when Sam Green, who is the uh, person who instigated the research forest, the sentence that I've heard is they wanted to maintain a piece of the forest that, that was representative of the forest prior to European-American forestry practices. Yep, that was my understanding of, of their goal as well. And it's interesting. So we can think of Camp 8 as a stand that hasn't been managed. But we've just heard, too, that from very early in its development, it was likely shaped by fire and by through the actions of, of the people who lived there at that time. Uh, we also know that Camp 8 has been very much shaped by management um, since 1984. Kyle, you mentioned the treatment that occurred on uh, half of the Camp 8 site in order to replicate or simulate the effects of fire on that stand. You know, back in the early 2000s, when I, I uh, was taking groups out there, we would often talk about, talk about management. We would talk about, you know, what do you see here in Camp 8? And we'd talk about the financial value. There would be people in the stand, you know, people out there who would say, gee, you really ought to harvest this. You know, these big trees have a lot of value. And, you know, there are people who see forests primarily through that lens, which is um, fine. You know, their uh, wood is a renewable product. It's locally produced. Uh, there are other people who would um, cringe at that and say, well, we could never harvest this. And, 
you know, it has other values, and we've been talking about some of those other values today. So to me, it, it's always been sort of a crucible through which we can we can get to some of those stories. And and the lessons of Camp 8, I think, um, one of the big lessons is, is about, you know, sometimes we think of harvesting timber as a, as a, as a bad thing or, you know, as, as, a, as a disruption of an otherwise good, healthy system. And we forget about the important role of disturbance and, and so on. And so for me, it's just a great place to talk about that. And, you know, as with any complex issue, um, we don't all draw the same lessons from it. So I want to go in a little bit of a different direction now. And Kyle, I know you and I see this just a little bit differently, but you know, looking at Camp 8, and you can see in Claire's story map, we can see that it's changing a lot right now. Uh, there is an outbreak of armillaria, which is a fungus that causes mortality in, when it affects trees that are stressed. And, and you know, that includes the trees in Camp 8. We don't know if armillaria is killing those trees or if something else is killing them. But what we see is a growing pocket of mortality. In other words, we have trees that are dying and, the, and, and that sort of circle of dying trees is, is spreading out sort of radially and it's right in Camp 8. So there are a good number of these very large old red pine trees that are dying and they're not gonna live forever. Camp 8 is going to change more in the coming years. I don't know how quickly. But that raises the question to me, if, if Camp 8 is such a special place and it's not going to be the way it is now forever, uh, what's going to be the next Camp 8? And uh, Kyle, why don't you take that one first? Yeah, Eli, you're right. We have, we've had some interesting discussions on, that, on this question of what is uh, or what will the next Camp 8 be and also how to interpret current mortality and current stand development. And I think it's such, it, to me, it's so interesting to know how we answer the question of what will the next Camp 8 be? And that's why I explored this question of what is Camp 8, because it's, it plays on our cultural biases, our personal biases, and also so much of what our expectations are for a given stand. So my first, uh, my first answer to the what will the next Camp 8 be is kind of confused because it's like, well, there's no plans for changing that piece of the forest um, from a management perspective. As long as I'm forester, I plan to maintain that as, a, as an example of both a passive and active reserve. So the active reserve being, we're gonna choose to be actively manipulating that stand by reintroducing fire or potentially doing mechanical treatments like have been done. And we're gonna choose to not do that on the Eastern half or the untreated side we want to maintain that fire suppression versus no fire suppression, or I guess the at least the structural view of what fire suppression looks like. Uh, we want to maintain that reserve. So again, my confusion is, well, that that is going to be there um, regardless of whether or not some of the trees die. Whether what is Camp 8 is interesting is, is Camp 8 a geographic location? Uh, as I kind of, my immediate answer is that, yeah, it's a geographic location that has certain management goals. But it's also, as I talk to more people, it is those trees. Those trees are storytellers, as you've brought up in our conversations, Eli. They hold, they hold the key to the history for the last 210 plus years. And so to some extent, yeah, those, those trees can't be just plopped in anywhere. And that's the power of being able to be in, the, in that stand is that you see those old trees and you know that that doesn't happen overnight. So there's, we can make choices on 
other pieces of the forestry center property to say, okay, let's look ahead to 150 years from now. If we have some 50 year old red pines, is this a place where we would want to reintroduce fire and potentially help those trees develop into the future cathedral trees? Uh, that's a management choice we could make and we have pockets of the forest where we could do that. But my, my simple, Apparently, no answer is simple when it comes to, to my answers, but my simple answer is that that stand will be there because I see that the primary quality of that stand is the value that I place on it is that we can observe ecological process. Yes, those trees are important to that stand and it'll change once those trees die over the next hundred years, it will feel different, but we can choose to be involved and choose to reintroduce surface fire in order to try and make sure that that ecological process can continue. So where will the next Camp 8 be? It'll be right there as long as I'm forest manager. Claire, when you think of that question, where will the next Camp 8 be? How do, what comes to mind for you or how would you answer that question? So I think when I hear that question of where will the next Camp 8 stand be, I think more about like the idea of Camp 8 and less about like the actual geographic location of our current day Camp 8. And when I think about that idea, kind of as, as you brought up, Kyle, I think of this deep sense of connectedness to place. I've moved around quite a lot in the last 10 years, and yet over the span of a summer, through collecting stories, being in the place, gathering this history about Camp 8, I felt an immense connectedness to these trees and to this place. And so when I think about where will the next Camp 8 be, I'm thinking about where will there be a place that not only myself, but all these other people feel this connection. And kind of baked into that is a place where fire can be returned to the landscape. Fire was a part of a lot of different ecosystems, often or sometimes brought there by different indigenous groups. And so for me, I think the next campaign is gonna be a place where we have these human connections to the land, also a place where we kind of recognize the cultural components of fire. We celebrate that, we truth tell that, and we maintain these areas with prescribed burns. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, the writer, brings up this really interesting idea of reciprocal restoration. And this is an idea that you're going to get with ecological restoration, also cultural restoration, and how there's this idea of mutual flourishing. When the plants and the trees and the landscape is flourishing, so are we as people. And fire played a role in this. Fire was part of this. And again, that's going to look different in different places. It's going to play out differently. But for me, the next campaign is going to have those components. It's going to have people connecting to the land, and it is going to have, in some form or another, fire. So bringing in the term cultural is always interesting because I think at times, um, we think of indigenous cultures as being of the past, but it's been pointed out to us, I think, regularly as we get into not only this story, but um, as I learn about the contemporary reality of the land in which we live, I know that indigenous people are definitely very present. So when you say, when you use the word culture, or cultural restoration, as, as Damon Panic brings up, can you describe a little bit more of what, how we should interpret that? Yeah, so I think Damon Panic and what he's doing on Stockton Island is just this beautiful model of cultural restoration. Um, so there is still a ton of burning occurring by different indigenous groups, but a lot of places that are under federal control 
Um, those places have certain rules around burning that might not allow fire to be present there in the way that it was for a very, very long time. And so I think a really, the really cool thing that Damon is doing is that he's bringing cultural fire onto a, a landscape that is now a national park. And so it's kind of this fusion. And I think that is an important point to bring up that fire is still being used culturally in a lot of different places. But I think the big thing is that it needs to be used in a lot more places, especially places that have been taken from their their stewards and are now under a different sort of landscape control. And so bringing fire back to those spaces. And we, of course, have tried to, we're working towards changing our relationship with fire in the land. Fire is just as much a part of the fire dependent uh, native plant communities as a red pine. That was a really interesting thought as I was prepping for this conversation that we see fire as uh, similar to humans, I think. We see it as kind of an external process, but we know that it's such an integral part of these fire dependent systems, but we're not necessarily always willing to use it. So we're taking what we're learning from Camp 8 and the history of fire and our relationship to fire and coming up with a, a burn plan to reintroduce fire because we see it as being a very important part of portions of our uh, native plant communities at the forestry center. Our goal at the forestry center is to say, hey, we need to have fire on the landscape, at least in certain places, but it should be part of our management portfolio because if we want these fire dependent species and fire dependent systems to persist into the future and develop into the future, uh, we need that part of the ecological community just as much as we need to be planting red pines or planting white pines. Yeah, I agree with you. And and I do want to emphasize too that fire is a really blunt tool. And so it is something that has to be, you know, handled with a lot of thought. And I have seen, you know, devastating wildfires and what they can do to a landscape and to homes and to people's lives. And obviously fire is something to be really thoughtful about. And, and it's important to recognize that we can't ever control fire. That just like we can't fully control windstorms or fully control how a tree is going to grow, we need to approach fire and reintroducing fire with the humility that respects that it it is a blunt tool at times and it can get out of control. So we've been trying to take kind of more of a, a risk management rather than living in this realm of everything is uncertain, so let's not do anything. We're trying to take a little bit more of a work with people that have worked with fire and take it, take it from a risk management perspective. But we also see that there's risks to not reintroducing fire. When we think of these stands 100 to 200 years down the road, we think there's some risk in potentially not bringing fire back into these systems. That's kind of a tangent, Eli. Back to the, <laughs> back to the question, uh, where do you think the next Camp 8 will be? Well, I don't know. You know, to me, it's, a, it's really a place that we gather. Like I said before, we gather to talk about the things we value, to hash out how best to understand and care for our woods. You know, should we do more harvesting? Should we do less harvesting? What does it look like if we do, if we manage in this way or that way? So to me, on one level, the, the answer really relates to forest management. If we want another stand that really immediately grabs anyone in it and, and inspires awe, um, if, we want, if, it, if it's these huge trees and the open understory and something about that structure that's not common across the landscape now, 
then I think there's a lot we can do through management, basically through thinning those stands so that the remaining trees have more room to grow. They get bigger, faster to produce that, that structure that's so unique now about Camp 8. And so on one level, I think it relates to that. I think it relates to how we choose to manage our forests. Uh, but on another level, it's really about creating spaces where we can talk, we can go into the woods, um, we can listen to one another, we can learn about our shared history and connections to the land around us. And, you know, when you think about it that way, it's bringing us back full circle, what better name could we choose for this podcast than Camp 8? That's really what we're trying to do here, too. Claire, do you have, I think we're, we're getting kind of towards the end of our uh, discussion here. Do you have any final thoughts on, the, on your process as a creative writer and getting involved in, in getting to know Camp 8 and the people that have made decisions about the management there? I feel really lucky to have been part of telling this story. And I recognize that this part that I have been a part of is a small part of the Stan's history and of the Stan's story. And just on a personal level, I'm really excited to see what the next steps are and how this story is going to continue to unfold. And again, I feel really connected to this place. And so I'm curious in, in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years, when I come back to Camp 8, what will it be? What decisions will we have made? I think, I don't know, I feel really hopeful about how thoughtful everyone I've spoken to is regarding management and how we're moving forward. And I'm just excited to see how this story kind of continues to play out and unfold. You've been able to explore and document Camp 8 in a way that we never could have coming from um, our training and background and we're, we're forever indebted to the work that you've put together and, and very much appreciative of all the energy and the, the time that you've put into this, producing this piece and documenting this place on the forestry center that we care about so much. Yeah, thank you so much. It was an incredible summer. Camp 8 is produced by the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative and supported by the University of Minnesota College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resources Sciences, the University of Minnesota Extension, and the Cloquet Forestry Center. Thanks for tuning in and keep in touch.